I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. In our last podcast, we spoke with Diane Tavener about the path forward, how schools and families should prepare as we all head into the unknown, the launch of the first full school year during the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we talk with Diane again, this time about how she and the approach to learning that she developed through Summit School got here. Like anything else, perhaps even more so, education today requires a blend of the visionary and the practical. We need the extraordinary ideas and insights to reach the seemingly impossible goal of ensuring opportunity for every child, but also the practical paths, the daily steps required to make those opportunities possible. But what should that blend look like? How does it integrate not only a clear focus on academics, but also what's happening beyond the classroom? And how should the crucial teacher, parent, and student relationships and responsibilities work together to bring that vision to reality? Diane answers these questions, and as you'll hear, the words opportunity and practical are very important in her vocabulary. Some background. Diane is the co-founder and CEO of Summit Public Schools, which operates 15 public, middle, and high schools in California and Washington State. She also serves on the board of TLP Education, the organization helping schools across the U.S. to implement Summit Learning, Summit's personalized approach to education. Before founding Summit, Diane spent 10 years as a public school teacher, administrator, and leader in traditional urban and suburban public schools throughout California. Diane is also the author of Prepared, What Kids Need for a Fulfilled Life, which offers a, quote, blueprint of how parents can stop worrying about their children's future and start helping them prepare for it. One note, this second conversation with Diane was actually our first one together. We recorded this conversation about five months ago. In fact, I opened the talk by asking her about a great honor. Bill Gates had recently listed Prepared as one of his five holiday book recommendations. Unfortunately, just as that conversation was about to post, COVID-19 hit, schools were in turmoil, and we delayed. We're thrilled to finally release it now. Before my conversation with Diane, though, an ask from me to you. If you like these 180 conversations, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It'll make a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Diane Tavener. Diane, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you. So glad to be here. So I think we should start with the question everyone wants to know. What does it feel like to get on Bill Gates's holiday book recommendation list? Come on, one of the most significant and charitable people in the world recommended only five books for the holidays, and yours was one of them. Any tips for the rest of us? Well, Chris, I don't know about tips, but I can tell you that it feels humbling. Yeah, um, I'm sure it does. You know, I, I, one thing we know, the reason his list is so important is because we know that uh, he he reads all of these books and he cares deeply about them. And so, gosh, what an honor um, for Bill Gates, who knows so much about education and has given so much to it. Um to actually recognize uh, the book prepared and the messages in it. And so I just am, am deeply humbled um, and grateful to him because, uh, you know, the, I wrote the book to, to try to 
initiate a conversation, to invite people into a conversation. And certainly he has he's helped a lot on that front. Certainly. And in helping get the word out. Why, why do you think, I mean, let's think about the range. I mean, sure, you have a, a Bill Gates on one end, but I am certain that he's not the only person who you've heard from, uh, the only person to whom this book has spoken. Why do you think what you wrote has spoken to so many people? Well, um, I can tell you what I'm hearing from from people, um, and you know, I feel it's it feels like such a an honor, but also a responsibility to to get the messages I'm getting kind of on a daily basis now from people who've read the book. Um, and what they're saying to me is one, they just really welcome an honest, authentic conversation. Um, you know, one of the things I tried to do in the book was be really honest about what it is like to be a parent and to be an educator and the challenges of that and the struggles. And um, that seems to really resonate with people, the honesty around that. And then two, the hopefulness. And, you know, uh, it's easy to look around and think that that everything is broken or nothing is working or people aren't talking to each other and we can't even have conversations. And it's really easy to think that in education. And the truth is there's a lot of really amazing work happening and a lot of amazing people. And there's a lot of things to be hopeful about. And, um, and so that seems to really be resonating with people. And then finally, just the practicality of it. You know, yeah. we are practitioners. We do this work. I'm a mom every single day and I'm an educator every day and I'm surrounded by these amazing people who are the same. And I think the book just has a lot of practicality to it that people are really interested in. Do I dare ask you which one's harder, mom or, or educator? <laughs> <laughs> It, it depends on the, the minute or the hour or the day, I think. <laughs> I bet um, it does. I thought it was going to be a tie yeah, for first. <laughs> it, <laughs> it really does. Yeah. Um, why'd you write it? Why'd you write Prepared? Hmm. Yeah, I wrote it. Um, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for quite a while. And for many, many years, people told me, Oh, you have to write a book. You have to write a book. And I just always thought, why? I don't know why I would write a book. I don't even know what I would say. And, um, w when I finally came to me that I, I had something to say about this intersection between parents and educators and what I was finding in school after school and community after community was, that parents and educators want the same things for kids. They want to get them ready for and prepare them for a good, fulfilled life, to be good people and good citizens and do well and be healthy and happy. And um, that, how to do that was where they were getting tripped up with each other and seemed to be talking across and over and around each other in a lot of ways. And it it um, just seemed confusing to me why that was happening. And so um, it started by me kind of uh, literally trying to bring people together around dinner tables and just understand what was going on and then be in dialogue together. And um, And then finally, a good friend of mine said, you know, a book is, it's like a six-hour conversation, Diane. Mm. 
And so what can you do in a six-hour conversation? And I just thought to myself, oh, my gosh, we can do a lot in a six-hour conversation. And so that's really how I see the book is is um, just a, a conversation among people who care passionately about our kids and our future and and really want to come together to do something about it. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned the word earlier, practicality. And it sound, in listening to you, there, it sounds like you – saw or heard or thought about a practical need or a pra- and and you delivered something practical as well yes something with vision of course and aspiration of course um but also practicality um and as i was reading your the book and other materials and uh, from you and 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 thinking about this th- there are a few words that really come to mind. Um, and I want to ask you about another one. You begin the very, very beginning of uh, Prepared with the story of Isabella. And I don't want to give away the punchline, but your conclusion was, like all kids I know, Isabella wanted an opportunity, not someone to save her. Opportunity is an important word for you, isn't it? Incredibly important. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite emotional. (laughs) Um, she, she is such an inspiration, but she's like so many of the kids that, um, that people like me get the privilege of knowing. And, um, what is so often the case is that I think I took more from that relationship than she probably did. Mm. And, you know, what she helped me remember and see was as a kid, who grew up in, um, you know, circumstances that were at times quite traumatic. Uh, what I wanted was opportunity, and um, I wanted to have a voice, and I wanted to be heard, and I wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to be able to be my own person and and um, drive my own life. And um, you know, so many of us who get into this work have such great intentions, and this is parents and educators, but the approach we take is we try to save kids <laughs> from society or their family or themselves. And she's just such a powerful reminder to me that um, that's not what she and other – that's not what people want they want to do it themselves. They just need help and support and opportunity. And so I just keep that really central to both my parenting and my work. I mean, she really did not want you to save her. She really just wanted she the opportunity. No, she did not. She didn't want when and and you can fill in the details, but she had been a member of a gang. She had walked away from the gang. Mm-hmm. She still had the tattoo from the gang. She her parents were not. I think they were had a drug problem. They were not. They may have been in her life, in but picture. they were not. They they weren't caring for her day to day exactly. She was living with her grandma. And that became a very bad situation. I mean, it was it did. crazy. I mean, she was living on the floor because the grandma was having to rent out the room space that she would live in. And Isabella didn't want the help. She and you offered a great deal of you know practical help. Let me help you move. But she really did want the opportunity. She wanted into Summit she Schools. Did. She did. She did, and she fought for it. And um, yeah, what I realized in that relationship was. Um, 
me trying to help her in ways that she didn't want, that was all about me. That wasn't about her. It's not what she needed or wanted. And she really caused me to check myself and think about what is my purpose in this work? And is is my purpose about me or is it about her? Mm -hmm. Because if it's about her, I need to do what she needs, not what makes me feel good. And I'll be honest with you, as a parent, that's one of the greatest struggles that I experience and that I see my friends experiencing as parents is that oftentimes as parents, we we do things for our kids, with our kids, to our kids, because they make us feel good, um, as opposed to it's what our kids actually need and or want. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a reason that that story really opens the book and that that message is so um, foundational to, to this conversation. Yeah, it, it's a heck of a way to open the book. And I'm going to ask you about the parenting component that you were just referring to. I think you're referring to a number of different components of parenting, but um, the, the concept of failure and and allowing kids to fail is is a topic that I, I want to get to with you. But I think you would, just in, in kind of finishing out this idea of opportunity, I think from having read about you and heard uh, some of the things that you have said, I think you would be mad at me if I didn't push you a little bit on the concept of opportunity and ask you, what does the science say about it? Does the science lead you to believe, not that every child deserves an opportunity. I, I almost feel like that's a a philosophical concept, but that every child has an ability to best take advantage of an opportunity. What, what does the science have to say about opportunity? Yeah. Um, and there's so uh, much science on this. And I sit in this fortunate seat of having access to and uh, being a real student of the science and mm. um, and a practitioner who really tries to take the science and put it into practice. And so, um, you know, I just want to start with the caveat that I'm not the expert here, uh, but I am a, a great uh, – I have deep respect for the science. And so my translation of it will be a little bit layperson-y here if you'll, if you'll pardon me that. But yeah. um, the things that resonate for me around this idea from the science are, first of all, just the natural human desire and want and need. Um, I think easily summed up for me in my head of um, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. So every human wants to be good at what they do. It's a natural human thing. We want it. No one wants to be bad at what they do. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't feed us as people. And we also want to be doing things that are meaningful or purposeful to us. And we want some degree of control and autonomy over that. We want some say over our lives. This is a just a natural human um, set of wants and needs. And so for me, the concept of, of opportunity starts to draw on the science just from who we are as people. Now, what's important about that is this this other part of the science, which is about the individuality and how we are each unique people. And so certainly we have a lot in common with each other. Certainly there are a set of basic habits and skills and mindsets that benefit us all. But we are each a unique expression of humanity and what we 
you know, our purpose and the things we like to do and the things that we care about and how all of that comes together, our interests and our curiosity um, is unique to each of us. And so I, I like to bring all of those things together and say, you know, um, I think the best versions of raising individual human beings are when we're helping them to discover about themselves um, you know, what do they bring to the world? What are their skills? What are their talents? You know, what do they offer to the world? What is, what is it? What mate matters to them in the world? And then what does the, the world kind of need? <laughs> and how do all those three things come together? And to me, that's the, like opportunity sits at the intersection of all of those things. Each child is unique, has different skills, capabilities, personalities, goals, and more. So much of the function of um, teaching and learning and even parenting is preparing our children. What does it mm-hmm. mean to be prepared? How, how do you define that? So I define it in the way that I think, honestly, most parents and educators do. And this has been one of the really inspiring things of discovering that this is where we have just a lot of commonality and a lot of shared vision and belief. And that is that um, prepared means when a a child is entering adulthood, um, that they have a, a set of skills and knowledge and habits um, an understanding of themselves that I think is best sort of summed up as a sense of purpose that that collectively come together to equip them uh, for for lack of a better term a good life or a fulfilled life mm. and uh, you know we define a fulfilled life and I think the science the you know uh, helps us define a good life uh, and as kind of having five essential components. The first being the ability to do meaningful, purposeful work on a day-to-day basis. Um, There's an element of financial security, and certainly we can talk at length about how that may have been overly dominant in in some of our efforts to prepare people. But it is really important. And, um, you know, it's a sense of financial security that enables us to move forward. And again, that's going to be very different for, you know, the numbers on that will be very different for different people. Uh, the third piece is to be a part of a community. You know, we are social beings and community is really important. Uh, and to be able to have some strong interpersonal relationships. And then finally, to have the health to go about our daily lives. And so, you know, those are how we think about the five essential components of a good life or a fulfilled life. And so prepared, the idea is you enter adulthood equipped with those skills, knowledge, habits, sense of yourself to access that that good life. I don't know if others have pointed this out. What, among the things that I took away from the book, and, and you just summed up a, a significant component of it, is those attributes that you just described about having a fulfilled life, everything one reads about being a fulfilled adult, being fulfilled in one's later years, being fulfilled at various it encompasses a lot of what you just described, purposeful work, a sense of community, the ability to go through your daily life. And one of the things that, that you did, in my estimation, that one doesn't always see is you were able to to 
reverse engineer that almost and say, wait a minute, kids are people too. And building, if these are the components of what defines fulfillment, and by the way, like opportunity, fulfillment is another word that clearly is, is central to who you are. Uh, but that ability to reverse engineer it to saying, wait a minute, kids are people too, and maybe we ought to be thinking about how we educate, how they get educated, how we parent about, how we parent them. Maybe we ought to be thinking about it in these very same terms, just in ways that are appropriate for the fact that they're kids and not adults. Is that right? That That's completely right. And now you're starting to tap into the kind of nerdy part of me who loves this, this intersection of science and then the design of both education and parenting and how do we bring those things together. But you're, you're absolutely right. Reverse engineering, or we would call it backward mapping, um, is exactly what we have done. And uh, you know, we, we are students of the science that helps us understand, you know, what are those little individual skills and habits and how do you build those skills and habits? And then how do you actually bring all of those together into a coherent, aligned experience in the context of a school environment or a family environment or a community environment? And how do those all interplay with each other so that we can um, I think really importantly, not have it be luck that some kids just sort mm-hmm. of fall into a, a place or a space that ana- allows that to happen for them, but that we can truly enable all kids to have an experience that that uh, that prepares them for that fulfilled life and that is reverse engineered. And so that is really our quest: is how can we design schools and be in partnership with families and caregivers and communities so that uh, all kids have that kind of experience that is benefiting from reverse engineering. So they're moving towards that preparation uh, for adulthood. And I want to ask you, of course, about the schools and how that comes to life within the schools. Um, A practicality question um, coming off of the point that we were just discussing about a fulfilled life. Um, a core idea from your book and your, you know, the things that you talk about and write about elsewhere is to urge parents to balance their focus on academics with what's happening beyond the classroom. First, why is that important? We are all taught, almost forced fed, that getting into college, which of course is the, you know, the, the goal, and I'm being, you know, I mean, I shouldn't be facetious. It is a goal, um, but there are lots of goals, it but it is the goal. Um, but we are all taught, almost force-fed, that getting into college is about the grades. So why should focus go beyond beyond just the schoolwork? It's such a great question. Let me start with the science and then maybe a little bit of the practical part of it from just the experiential part. So one of the things we know from the science is let's say all you really care about are the grades and the academic part. Let's just say that that's true. What we know is um, in order to be better at the pure academics, you actually have to pull on some of these other 
skills um, that are, are, quote, not academic, because what we have now learned is there is a whole suite of um, what has not been thought of, of academic skills that actually have a huge and massive influence on our ability to perform academically. And so we can just for a minute stop and pause and think about ourselves as learners. And when you're in a system of learning, you know, you can know all the math in the world, but if you are unable to meet a deadline or actually put pen to paper and show it or actually be able to explain it to someone, it's not going to matter if it's all locked up in your head. You know, there's a whole suite of skills around that that enable you to be effectively showing what you know and then applying it in life and then working on it with other people. Yes. And so – it's really, um, you know, overly simplistic to think that you can only foc- ever only focus on academics. And then I think the second kind of misconception has been, well, some kids are just born with those other skills and others aren't and they're just good at it or they're not, which, again, the science tells us unequivocally is untrue, that there's this whole suite of skills that really impact academic performance that are, in fact, skills. That means they're teachable. They're developable, they're learnable, you know, we can get better at them. And so when you start to see those skills in combination with the academic piece and as actual skills that can be taught and learned and developed, now you start to think, huh, why are we only focused on math and reading and writing in school? Why aren't we actually focused on the full suite of skills that have an impact ultimately on how well we read and how well we do math? And oh, by the way, most successful people will tell you if you ask them what makes you successful, they generally do not you know, point to their uh, amazing ability at the quadratic equation. <laughs> they point to these other skills that have really enabled them to be successful human beings. And oh, by the way, powered their strength in math or, or some other place. So it's, it's, it's supported in the science and really intuitive when we just take a step back and think about what makes us as successful as people and learners. Does failing work? When can failure be productive? <laughs> Yeah, so the answer is yes and no. Um, there are some real conditions that have to be true for failure to be helpful. And unfortunately, that does not include just sending your kid into the kitchen with a bunch of uh, ingredients and saying, uh, I expect a meal in an hour. It does not include that, as you know, that I kind of learned the hard way <laughs> as a parent. Okay, so go um, ahead. I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. Lesson. Yeah. No, no. It's, um, you know, it's unfortunate because this idea of failure, uh, I live in the Silicon Valley and the Silicon Valley has managed to turn, you know, failure into this incredible, amazing, you know, it's the best thing ever. And what's missing from that story is it's actually not um, unless it has w- what I believe are two really important qualities. So failure is effective um, if it it doesn't close big life doors uh, for someone. And so there are particular types of failures that um, can be quite frankly destructive. And the, the most powerful failures are the smaller, more frequent ones um, that then are coupled with a reflection and a learning. So it's only 
it's only useful to fail if there's some new insight or some growth or something that comes from that. And that actually requires a process of recognizing what happens and reflecting on it and then applying that to the next scenario or situation. And so I think oftentimes where we go wrong in this is we wait until those big giant moments like 11th grade AP English and we think, oh, well, our kid has to fail at some point, so they're going to fail this course, which actually in practical terms is going to close a significant amount of doors for that child and their future. That's not the moment to, to practice failure because what are you going to learn from that? It, you're, a lot of doors were closed. Um, where I think the right moment to fail is, and there's a million of opportunities are on that first or second or third project in that course where the student didn't put together a good project plan or didn't manage their time well or didn't actually appreciate the knowledge that they needed to deeply understand and internalize and kind of skimmed over it and therefore weren't was not able to perform in that moment and then got some feedback about that lack of performance and then was able to take that feedback and reflect on it and apply it in order to improve and get better. Um, building skills, both academically as well as the other types of habits we talked about. So that's much more powerful failure, I think, when it happens like that um, and more routinely and more consistently with a structure wrapped around it where you're actually learning from it. And so I will burden you with asking you a question that you yourself have posed. Um, and I think it gets to the heart of what is a challenge in so much of life, which is balance. Um, and then I want to ask you about this little school system thing that you have played a role in helping create. Um, and we can talk about that in a second. Um, but first I want to talk, I, I want to ask you to follow up on, on the point you were just making. And I want to ask you about helicopter parenting. Um, in one of your recent essays, you asked, so the question for most parents is how do we avoid falling into the trap of being overbearing helicopter parents on the one hand and hands-off free rangers on the other. And I take that as the question of how do we, how do we balance it? And, and so from yes. the practicality point of view, from what you've seen, from what you've learned, what's your guidance to parents? How should one think about that balance? Well, I think you're exactly right. It's balance and, you know, like any, anything that we're trying to balance, um, you know, I don't know that you can steer a completely straight line down the middle at all points. So you're going to sort of go a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right and try to correct. And so I think the key there is to try to keep that, that movement as tight as possible down the middle. Um, what I see happening often is parents who are trying not to helicopter, for example, saying, uh, kind of going, you know, completely hands off and all right, well, I'm not going to check on my child. I'm going to let them own it completely. I'm going to trust them until, you know, that semester grade comes in and it's a failure. And then they freak out and they swing completely to the other side. And now they're, you know, hyper monitoring and checking every email and doing all sorts of um, you know, controlling behaviors. And the unfortunate part about that is who's actually helping the child develop the skills to own it themselves because they're not born with those skills in the, in the first part of that equation. And then in the second, who's helping them actually reflect on where it's not working and then figure out how to, you know, self-correct and, and go forward. And so I like to really think of it as our job is, coach and mentor um, 
And so how could you have a reasonable amount of involvement regularly from the start? How can we think about asking regular and right questions that are prompting our child to take that ownership and help them think about what their goal is and what they want from something. And then when they're veering away from that, return them to that. Um, and how can we sort of keep a steady presence there that is not controlling and overbearing? And most importantly, how can we let them figure out their way of doing things, which is often different from ours. So one of the, I think, hardest parts as a parent is, you know, we have a certain way of doing things. And it doesn't mean it's the right way. But can we let our child figure out their way that suits them and works for them? Or are we going to oppose our way on them? Um, and so, uh, you know, that's a little bit still high level, but that, that is kind of the, the middle ground balancing act. And I, the best analogy I have is just we have to think of ourselves as coaches where we're not playing the game. Um, and we're not running out on the field, but we are there. We're in practice and we're helping identify the skills and support the skill development, giving feedback. Um, and so we're a presence, but, but not controlling. Well, I think that you have looked at my notes because you have just helped me segue perfectly to summit in this concept of coaching and mentorship and in particular, the role and the unique role that adults can play in kids' lives. Um, on the website where the summit experience is described, the site outlines three roles, the teacher's role, the student's role, and the family's role. Why is that triumvirate so important? You don't see descriptions of schools frequently framed in that way. Summit puts, imposes the wrong word, um, asks responsibility, maybe even expects responsibility from three distinct areas. Why is that triumvirate so important? So I think first and probably foremost, it's actually a honest reflection of the three groups that are involved in this process of preparing a child for the future. And again, we believe that those three groups have aligned goals and aligned priorities and aligned hopes. You know, parents and schools, they want the child to be successful. They want them to be ready for life. They want them to do well. And so I think what we're doing is just making really overt that reality that we're, we're all in this together. We want the same things. And so um, let's embrace that and own that and be really um, uh, specific and overt about that. And then let's make sure we're lined up and working together and how we're going to, to get there and the roles that we are going to play in getting there. And just, um, you know, one of, one of our incredible school leaders always says, clear is kind. Mm -hmm. And, um, being really clear about who plays what role and what responsibility we have, we just think is kind to everyone. And it makes, um, you know, the motivation is obviously there. You know, I, don't know an educator that doesn't care about their kids and doesn't wake up in the morning who thinking about and wanting to support their kids. And I don't know a parent who doesn't do that. And that includes all 
the parents and the educators who are deeply flawed and have our own issues and, you know, struggle. But, but the, those are our desires and our wants. And so being really clear with each other about the various roles we are going to play in this collective project to prepare our kids is really critical. Um, and what good fortune that we have all of those people who are driving in the same direction. And so, uh, you know, let's just make that make that specific and straightforward. It also was a powerful visual that when students graduate, they walk down that graduation aisle with their mentor, which is a teacher, as well as with someone who, in your words, someone who had been important in their journey in life, like a parent or relative. They all succeeded. They all drove that journey to graduation didn't they? They did. And, um, you know, there, there's, um, when I, when I started, when we started our first school, um, you know, there's real power in the symbolism, quite frankly, in helping to establish a culture and a community, um, and, and the values of that community. And, uh, that first graduation, um, we knew intuitively how important it was and what a, a message it was going to send to people about what we cared about and what we valued. And um, that expression of those three groups coming together at this really important moment of transition and celebration um, it just captures who we are and what we believe in. Uh, and so you're right. It, it is a profound part of that ceremony. What is the aligned school model framework? Um, it's a, you know, again, a bit of a wonk on the wonky side, I will tell you on the sciencey side, it is, um, you had talked earlier about this notion of reverse engineering. And so the aligned school model really is the expression of that reverse engineering. What it does is it, it gives people who are designing or redesigning or thinking about how a school is organized a real framework that, um, that helps them go through and, um, figure out if you have an existing school where your gaps are and where your, your problems are. And if you're starting from scratch helps you really design a school model that is truly reverse engineered or backward map from your ultimate outcomes. You know, one of the hardest, saddest things is, um, you'll walk into most schools in America, quite frankly, and they'll have these incredible aspirations, you know, painted on the wall or written on the, you know, monument in the yes. front or somewhere, yes. you know, on the handbooks. And yet when you look at the actual practices that are happening day to day and the systems and the routines, the science can very quickly tell us that those, those activities are not going to add up to that, that ultimate goal and aspiration. They're just not, there's a big gap there. And yet we still run these schools every single day. And it's obvious that there's a gap there, but we're not doing anything about that. And so this framework was really our um, accountability. It was the way we think about our schools and we're constantly checking them and aligning them and whatnot. And then how we were able to share with other people the work that we were doing and give them a tool in order to do that in their own schools. I want to ask you about the measurement and the sharing, both of which are clearly so important um, to you and to, to the model. But at the heart of that model is project-based 
learning and a project-based learning curriculum. Why is that? And why are projects at the center of how Summit's kids and students learn? We can point right back to the science here because the science is incredibly clear um, about how we as humans work best and learn best. And uh, wrapped up into this concept and this definition of project-based learning is all of that science. And so an approach to learning that is centered in project-based is really rooted in the science and what we know about how people learn. And and again, this is also going to be intuitive to people. Um, You know, how do we – when I ask people to think back, older people like me, (laughs) you know, think back to your high school and what what are the experiences, what are the learning experiences you remember most? People inevitably point back to the project that they did that was really real world. It was authentic. They were applying knowledge in a, in a way to answer a question or solve a problem or, you know, perform in some way that was meaningful and relevant to them. And it kind of brought all these interdisciplinary ideas together often. Um, that is, there's a reason that people remember that type of learning because it is the most powerful way to learn. And so what we know is for the vast majority of people sort of sitting in a desk and receiving knowledge is not the best way to learn and then regurgitating it on sort of a, a, an assessment. And while stuff like that has maybe a moment and a time and a place, that is a lot of um, the place where technology can actually help us. And that shouldn't be the day-to-day experience. It's it's not the way to maximize learning. And so um, I would point to both the science and then our own experiences um, of why a, a a daily and year-over-year experience where kids are truly solving real-world problems in hands-on way and applying knowledge and asking questions and collaborating and doing performance tasks to show what they know um, that are really relevant and and consistent with what they'll do in the future in the world um, is by far the most powerful way to learn. And you have taken these learnings and these practical applications. And, you know, we just talked about you, you've created a, a model framework. You've taken the approach to project-based learning curriculum and packaged isn't quite the right word, but you promote it or you, you enable it in a way so that it can be shared with other schools. Why is that important to you? Why does sharing matter? Why does it matter more than just getting your own house in order, why is it important to you to help enable other people and other schools to get their homes in order as well? There's two two really important values that underlie uh, this work. And so the first one is uh, we are first and foremost a learning organization. And I say that because most schools are not designed to be learning organizations, and that sounds crazy. But if you think about it, the institutions themselves do not actually have systems and routines and mechanisms that allow them to constantly be learning and evolving and growing. And, you know, people are oftentimes pointing out, wow, you know, you can walk in a classroom today and it looks the same way it did 100 years ago. And, you know, that's somewhat of an exaggeration, but not really in a lot of cases. And um, that is because schools really aren't designed to be learning entities, which is ironic because what you're supposed to be doing in them is learning. We 
really, um, if there's one thing that sets Summit apart from most places is that we are a learning organization and entity. And so um, part of why we share and do what we do is because that's how you learn. Learning is a social activity. Learning comes from engaging and interacting and asking questions and looking at what other people are doing and incorporating that and asking for feedback. And that's what we do as an organization. And so every time we put something out into the world, we get incredible feedback and people build on it and we learn more and and become better because of that. Um, and so th- that's the first value that's really important there. And then the second one is um, – you know, we talk about all kids in our mission and our vision. And, you know, every one of us in this organization um, comes to this work with the purpose around a real deep belief in the power of education for all kids and a deep commitment to our country and our world. And um, I think we are a little bit um, saddened, quite frankly, by how in some bizarre ways – Schools compete against each other as if anyone in our society wins when one school is better than the other. Mm. When my school outranks another one because the kids over at that other school don't read. Um, and this, it just, it, it's, it doesn't make any sense to us. And we fundamentally believe that our country, our communities, our world are, a, it's a better place if all of our kids actually discover their purpose and are prepared for the future. Um, and we we can imagine a world where so many problems get solved when that is true. And so this scarcity mindset around education doesn't make any sense to us. And so we try to act um, in accordance with that value and be completely open and share and help everyone serve every child better. And, um, you know, obviously we can't do that ourselves, so we need to do that in partnership. Yeah. I mean, is, isn't that the point? It's, you know, if we <laughs> talk about – if you talk about personal fulfillment as being one of the points, isn't societal fulfillment on some level an equivalent point? And uh, before before we close the conversation, I want you to just bring it to life for me a little bit. Um, the framework that we've – that you've described – that becomes very intentional in every aspect of what you do, school design, educator practice, and, and enabling adults to deeply know their students, new approaches to measurement. How does your framework help build the best educators that you can have? It's such a great question, and I think that um... – you know, probably the best way uh, to to start is to talk about um, our commitment to kind of this virtuous cycle. So as an educator in our organization, and that's really everyone in the organization, including me, um, our belief is that we – I – we need to be constantly learning and growing and developing. And I and we should be doing that in the same way that we want our kids to be learning and developing. And you had made the really important point earlier that aren't aren't kids just like many versions of adults? I mean, we're all human. And it's true. The science of learning does not distinguish between, you know, an adult and a a 15-year-old in terms of the science of how we actually learn. And so that science works across the board. And so as a teacher, you know, I'm learning 
in an, a real world authentic way. So much of my learning and development is coming from feedback and collaboration and observation. And so we've built all of these mechanisms into the experience for the teacher and the student in a really virtuous cycle. Um, and I think one really concrete example that tends to really kind of blow people's minds, our teachers have 40 days a year of professional development time. So they're teaching for six weeks and then two weeks they are in community working on their own craft and working on their own skills and their own habits in a community in a way that is very consistent with the types of learning experiences that their students have. So they're growing and getting feedback in very regular intervals. And so that type of commitment to everyone in the organization as a learner and the whole organization being a learning organization, I think really encapsulates how we think about, um, you know, uh, that's how we're all constantly it's, – it's not something that the kids are doing and the adults are doing something differently. We are all constantly learning, growing, and getting better. And on that growing and on that getting better – um, that involves, in many cases, measurement. And I, I read a quote of yours recently, and I, I guess I, I, it, it, it actually depressed me a little bit, which is not how you meant it. But you said, um, while people's vision and mindset are starting to evolve in regard to what they want from schools, the way they measure schools is still very antiquated. And you went on to talk about how it's still aligned. Success is measured by scores and standardized scores. And that's the part that bummed me out because I think it's it rang true to me. How does that change? I think the only way that it changes is we've got to start talking about it. We've got to recognize it. And we have to start trying some new things. And so that's why you read a quote. Uh, every chance I get, I talk about it because I think it's, it's in my mind, the thing that's holding us back the most right now. Um, maybe I will just tell you this very, what I think is a hopeful um, anecdote of where this can go and what's possible and what happens um, when it is. Thank you. And I, I, will, I appreciate I will share. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, my son, and if folks have read the book, they know my son is a senior in high school right now. He's been in a summit school since sixth grade. So I am the parent this year who's going through this process of mm. Um, wondering if I have properly prepared him and if we have prepared him and getting ready to launch him into adulthood. And um, he applied to a really interesting, unique college called Minerva. This was his first choice by far. And it is much like the summit schools new, it's only four years old, redesigned, you know, designed from scratch in a very aligned way, including their admissions process. And so the story I have to tell you is like, when you actually think about designing college admissions from scratch, and not in a system that we're already embedded in and wedded to and whatnot, a couple of interesting things happened. One, this school doesn't require or take SAT or ACT scores. That's mm -hmm. not a thing they use. Two, they give kids um, – the applicants 
the, these performance tasks. And so they're done technologically. It takes a couple of hours. And they're these fascinating tasks that you can't actually prepare for. So they're just real opportunities for kids to show up and show what they know, what their skills are, what their mindset is, you know, what their habits are, those sorts of things. And when my son walked out of having done these tasks one Saturday morning, um, you know, he also took the SAT and ACT, and each of those times, they were literally traumatic and in miserable experiences for him, where he walked out and felt like, I have no idea how I did. It, I don't even know what they're measuring or testing. Yeah. It's so stress-inducing and anxiety-producing. And he walked out of these, these performance tests that he took for Minerva, and I said, well, what do you think? And he looked at me and he said, you know, I don't know how I did, but it felt fair. Mm. And I thought to myself, wow, imagine if every senior in this country was applying to college and they didn't know if what they did was, was going to get them accepted, but it felt fair. What a different country this would be right now, right? And so for me, that is what we're aiming for. And that moment gave me hope that we can get there. That does give hope. It it, it actually brings me back to the opening, uh, one of our opening topics, which is opportunity. It sounds like your son felt like, you know what? I feel like I was given an opportunity. I wasn't jammed into a standardized, you know, it was fair. I have a fair opportunity, which to your point and Isabella's point um, is really what any of us want. Um, Diane, to, to close this conversation, and I certainly hope you don't see me as being ungrateful. I mean, you've helped build Summit School, and you know, you you wrote this book that helps parents, and happened to catch Bill Gates's attention um, among other folks. So, I, I'm you know, I'm not ungrateful for the things that you have done up till now. But what's next? <laughs> No, I appreciate, uh, as someone who believes deeply in a learning organization, that's the most important question always because, um, you know, we need to keep pushing ourselves. Um, wow. Well, it's such a good question. Um, I think, you know, a couple of the really interesting things that we're working on at Summit that I think are the next, um, are we're really thinking about, um, uh, teacher preparation as well as school leader preparation. And we've got a couple of pilot programs um, along those lines and those experiences that are much more project-based and self-directed in the way that we have done for our students. So those are exciting. What next? And then um, some really early work on post high school. And so, um, you know, if K-12 education is in need of the aligned school <laughs> framework, I think higher ed may be even in more need. And we didn't spend any time there, but I think you and I both know there's a lot of issues. And so we're wondering if Summit has something to contribute there. And we're, we're in the early stages of exploring that. Diane, thank you. Thank you for your time. Um, and thank you, obviously, for the work that, uh, that you have done for kids and, and parents, for families. Thank you. This has been quite a pleasure. Thank you. That was my conversation with Diane Tavener. My thanks to Diane for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org.